from the dimly lit studios of Rodeo Institute, radio and television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another light-emitting episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Millions of people are gearing up to grow food for the first time to escape COVID isolation and the sight of their old wallpaper. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll let the light shine on those plants. Otherwise, it's a fabulous phone call show, cats and kittens, that's right. Potential guests are busy deforming their LEDs. So we will take that heap and helping of your telecommunicated questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and unexpectedly unusual unification. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, true believers, because it's all coming up faster than really bright light in your bathroom right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in chilly Bethlehem, PA. I'm your freezing cold host, Mike McGrath. And despite the weather outside, we are going to continue with our triad of information on how to triumphantly start your own seeds by concentrating on light. With a special dog and pony show, even. You won't want to miss it. And you won't. It'll come up after some of your fabulous phone calls. Cindy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike. Good to hear you. It's good to hear you, Cindy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And you? I'm just ducky, of course. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah. So was Ducky. He always likes to be in the show. He's much more popular than I am. So, where is Cindy doing well? I'm in Salina, Kansas, oh. kind of right in the middle of Kansas. Not Salina? No. no. I've been I've if been you're... botching it all these years. Yes. Oh well. Long A. Yeah, it's stupid Northerners. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What can you do for Cindy in Kansas? Well, I uh, I wrote originally because um, I had something. I have a, a small hoop house. And I uh, hadn't been in there in a while because mm-hmm. it had been cold and not much going on. But I went in and my spinach uh, was getting eaten by something. Uh-huh. And yeah, and I and I noticed um, there were trenches dug into the garden beds. And then I, I saw where it had whatever it was had dug under. There's just a small two by four frame around the outside had mm-hmm. dug under that to get in. And then I saw um, a, a kind of a burrow-like thing, and I didn't know, I couldn't figure out what was uh, making those kind of trenches and eating spinach, and so that's why I originally wrote to you. Okay. And is that it? Well, then I um, I started trying to figure out what it was, you know, and tried blocking up the holes with bricks, and it didn't mm-hmm. work, of course. And, and I... There was there was an entrance and exit to a burrow, so I got this piece of um, pipe insulation, you know, because it's kind of um, flexible, sure, uh, like for a hot water pipe, and stuck that down in there and just left it. And it was like 
three foot long, and the whole length of it went down in this burrow. And so I just left it, and the next morning I came back, and it was in shreds. Oh. It was whatever it was had had just take, cut it to little tiny pieces, and there were some big chunks left too. But huh. okay. uh, so well, then, oh, go ahead, keep going. <laughs> Then uh, I called my county agent, and he wasn't quite sure, and he said, why don't you get a trap? So I got a trap, and I caught it. And um, I, I sent you some pictures. I don't know if you've got them. Oh, boy, I'm not sure. Um, uh, was it the size of a mouse but not a mouse? It was, I, I think, bigger than a mouse. Um, I sent those pictures to the county agent also, and he thought it was a pack rat. Okay. Yeah, that's not a pest that I am overly familiar with. I could tell you right away it is not a mole because moles don't eat plants. And it's not voles or meadow shrews um, because they don't dig these kind of elaborate tunnels. And, okay. And that's what I thought it was at first. Yeah. Well, if, if you just had... Um, the issues with, with plants being eaten and stuff like that, and maybe little tunnels. Um, that would be voles, again, or meadow shrews. But pack rats are a really interesting pest. Now, you don't have, you, you, no, you don't have prairie dogs. That would be, just be on the other side of the, of the mountains out west. There are some around, just, but uh, I'm not close to town that I've ever seen. Okay, yeah, because uh, when I was in Colorado, I saw them a lot. Um, so what you have is an interesting creature. You know, pack rats um, get their name because uh, they like to find shiny objects and stuff and fill their burrows with them. It's like buried treasure. Now, you say you trapped a sample creature. Did you use a have-a-heart trap, one of the... Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what did you do with the beast after you were done taking its picture? <laughs> I took him out uh, near the river not too far away and let him go out there. Okay. Did you let him go with a uh, rock tied around his neck? or <laughs> No. Cement galoshes? <laughs> no, but I made sure he didn't follow me home. Yeah, no, he, he he's back already. Um <laughs> So one thing these creatures are famous for in your part of the country is they eat the rubber coating off of car wires. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. They go inside cars and, um, you know, for the warmth under the hood, and then they eat the tasty uh, coatings of the wires. He probably enjoyed pulling apart your uh, plastic venting thing. Yeah. So, I imagine he enjoyed the spinach more. Yeah. Well, you never know with these things. Um, I would, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not a Buddhist here, honey. Um, I, I would suggest that trapping is uh, a good idea here, uh, but there's a better use for that river than just releasing him near it, if you kind of get my drift. Um because once this thing gets started, it's going to be very hard uh, to keep it away. I, I think you could capture them. How, how do you feel about mass, mouse traps, deadly traps? Oh, we've, we've put them in the house before when we thought we had mice. Okay. 
because uh, I, I believe uh, regular old snap traps baited with peanut butter would be very effective, although you've already bought the small have-a-heart trap, right? Right. All right, so I would keep using that as well. And do you see, at, at some point, especially when the weather warms up, um, do you see where they're coming in from outside? Because obviously they're tunneling into your hoop house. Right. And so yeah, I could, there should be holes on the outside. Right. Um, one thing I want you never to do is don't use any kind of poisons or anything like that. Because right. they can cause tremendous collateral damage. And I will tell you that the um, greenhouse growers and the small-scale farmers I know are always being plagued with this, whether it's mice, voles. Pack rats is interesting. You may be the first pack rat call we've had. Huh. Um, we'll send you a prize. I don't know. <laughs> but I would, I, would, I would trap them. And the cure, believe it or not, for um, when they get into cars is to spray all the wiring with hot pepper spray. Which, ah, which I believe is available. I know you can get hot pepper spray wax at garden centers, um, but you might even find a version at local automotive centers. Because if you have pack rats, um, people are having their wiring chewed. Um, okay. Either that, or you know, get a cat and a litter box and set it up inside the hoop house. <laughs> So I like I, I caught this one like um, a week ago, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen any more damage. Um, and, but and I haven't caught another one. So are they solitary, or that's would a, there be a mate around? That's somewhere? a darn good question. We got to go uh, use our passport privilege and go back to nature programs to see the life of pack rats. <laughs> uh, so I don't know, but that's a good sign. Uh, fill in the holes because we absolutely want to know if there is um, any further damage. And one thing you could even do is for where I used to live in Philadelphia, which is still not that far away, I could go into Chinatown and I could buy a plastic bag of dried hot peppers the size of a king size pillow for right. like five bucks. So I would say, you know, find the least expensive hot, dried hot peppers, hot pepper shake, whatever you can find, and sprinkle that all in the lanes, all around your, uh, your spinach and your lettuce and everything else. Uh, they're not going to like that at all. Okay. All right. I can do that. Right. And that won't leave any taste for you. But if you see they're trying to get started again and you did get one of the hot pepper sprays, spray the hole heavily. Great. And if you catch one in there, spray it at them like you're one of the Ghostbusters. You know, back, <laughs> back, Simba, back. <laughs> All right. Great idea. Well, thank you. Thank you. You take care. Bye bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Colin, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. 
Well, thanks for having me. I'm pleased that uh, you were able to take my call. Well, uh, we're pleased that you're being had, and uh, thank you for making that call. How are you? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm, uh, it's a nice sunny day out here in uh, Warren County, New Jersey. I'm in uh, Washington. Okay. Uh, Washington, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's in Warren County, New Jersey. Yep, yep. There's a few Washingtons out here, so the uh, we usually give the county to. Okay, good. All right. What can we do uh, for our person in the Garden State? So uh, I've got a couple things that I recently added to my uh, garden setup. One is this fall I put in a bunch of blueberry plants. And I know I had heard you say uh, blueberries like acidic soil. And in fact, you you said something that really struck me. You you had said the soil needs to be almost impossibly acidic. Uh, And so I had that in the back of my mind and I said some point down the future, maybe I'll need to add some sulfur. But then uh, I got a Bokashi composting kit uh, at Christmas time. And as I was learning how to use it and reading about it, what I learned was the Bokashi tea that comes out the bottom uh, is relatively acidic. And I thought, ah, maybe I can use this as kind of a an amendment that helps acidify the soil. But I thought uh, if anybody knew, uh, you'd be a good person to give a call to and ask, hey, uh, is there a way I should do this? Okay, so uh, these machines uh, sit on your kitchen counter and you put your raw ingredients, your brown lettuce leaves, your apple cores, everything else in there. And it's my understanding, does it, I know it cooks it up, right? Does it chop it up as well or is that your job? Uh, we do the chopping up by hand. Yeah, get out a knife, uh, cut things down to a more manageable size. And then it goes through some sort of a heating process. And after that process is over, you theoretically get finished compost and compost tea, correct? Well, so the the way it, it the way it works with the kit I have, it comes with a kind of grain that's been inoculated with some kind of microorganisms. Gotcha. And so you put your uh, kitchen waste in the bin, you sprinkle over some of this inoculated bran, Mm -hmm. and then um, keep building up this pile until at some point you've reached a point where you put a lid on it and let it cook for a couple weeks. It doesn't get noticeably hot, at least when I touch the exterior, but... uh, you know, microbes are in there working away, and when I open it up after a couple of weeks, uh, you can see some mold growth from the the microorganisms. And then uh, what's coming out the bottom, uh, you know, you have a little spigot you open up, and it drains off some Bokashi tea. Okay. And are you supposed to just use the tea? What happens to the stuff in the, in the machine? So the the stuff eventually you can either directly bury it in the garden, the according to the instructions, or the uh, I've been putting it in a plastic composting tumbler. Okay. Uh, with my other normal garden waste. That sounds good. Well, I am of course unfamiliar with such a machine because nobody sent me one for free. That's you know that's the only reason. Um, but I think I have an easy solution for you. 
um, although you might not be able to find them this time of year. But as soon as it warms up a little, uh, go to an outdoor pool um, equipment store and buy a little uh, package of test strips. Um, when you have a pool above ground, in ground, you always want to be testing it to make sure the pH is at the right level. So in this case, you don't have to guess. You'll get a pretty accurate pH range. And yes, as long as it's acidic, that is a number under, say, 6.5 and not alkaline, I see no reason it wouldn't be a very helpful uh, amendment for your blueberries. Great, great. All right. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, uh, yeah, it's an easy solution, and it's uh, uh, very inexpensive, so um, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> okay. All right, Colin. Thank thanks you. for calling. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everyone even more seriously than we did last week that seed companies and catalogs are experiencing delays much worse than last year as COVID restrictions are seriously slowing down the process of pulling, packing, and shipping. So please get your orders in early, but don't go searching the web for the perfect watermelon just yet because we'll be right back with exciting information about LEDs and more of your exciting phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we continue our triad of essential information on how to start your own seeds with the importance of light. If you were thinking of using that so-called sunny windowsill, you better stay tuned. After a couple more of your fabulous phone calls, Virginia, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Why, thank you, Mike. Well, thank you, Virginia. How you doing? I'm very well. I'm excited to talk to you and ask you my question about voles. Okay. Um, are, uh, voles are uh, a nasty garden creature. Uh, we need to know where you're from. So, you know, you know there's a state named after you? I've heard that. <laughs> I've, a couple times I've heard that. So, um, I live in... Stormstown, which is in between State College and Warriors Mark. Okay. I know State College, obviously. Do, do you pick us up on the air from there? Yes, WPSU. Yep, they are a great station. And you have a voles. Tell us about your vole problem, Virginia, in Pennsylvania. Okay. I have five raised beds that I put in last year. Mm -hmm. um, 
They're about a foot off the ground. My husband and I built them out of locust boards. Excellent. Um, they are next to my regular garden, which I don't think I had ever had voles in before. Mm-hmm. After we built the raised beds and filled them with um, soil from around our house and our horse pasture, I started noticing that the corners inside the bed were collapsing because there were tunnels underneath. Does that make sense? It, um, it, it makes sense, of course, because I, I presume you're an accurate reporter here. Um, voles are not known for extravagant tunnels. Voles mostly do their dirty work at night, traveling on the surface of the soil, hmm. making little lanes, for instance, if they're prowling around a lawn. Uh, but we know this because their prime predator, of which you must have a, a ton, is owls, or are owls. Um, it's, it, it is the favorite food of the owl, and the owl can be the best friend of someone who is having vole problems. Uh, now, you haven't seen the creature. No, and you're making me think that maybe I don't have voles because I do have subterranean tunnels. I don't have the sort of casts of tunnels on the surface of the grass and on the surface of the garden. These are definitely coming up from underneath. Okay, so the two options here are, number one would be moles, M-O-L-E-S, Um, Mm -hmm. But moles do a lot of structural damage, but they don't eat plants. Now, do we know if they're bothering plants, or we haven't had time to find out yet? The collards that I planted in the fall Mm -hmm. were pretty much mowed down. Okay. Um, Like eaten off at the soil line? Yep. But devoured? Yes. Okay. Um, Well, that leaves us with groundhogs. So a groundhog tunnel is not as big as uh, the entrance, that is, is not as big as you might think, but they are well known for their extravagant tunneling. For instance, a typical groundhog tunnel will have an entrance and then it'll turn to the side with a drainage ditch, kind of, so they can go about their business in the rest of the tunnel and there will even be a separate chamber for them to do their business. So, and they have, they love to tunnel and they are, they are fat little things and they eat a lot. Um, they are also yeah, we, one of the most problematic garden pests to have. We have groundhogs um, further out in our fields and my dogs love to chase them. I'm mm-hmm. used to that. So this is, it sounds perhaps like I maybe have two different things going on that I have. It would be entirely possible for you to have moles um, mm-hmm. doing the structural damage and voles doing the eating. So uh, do you have any, it sounds like you, you have a, like a little farmette there. Uh, do you have any, have a heart traps, the live traps? No, I don't. Okay. So are two, uh, and the, but this is out in the open. Yes. So I, I would recommend, pardon? 
Well, it's sort of out in the open. Um, to the west, I have trees and a windbreak planted. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you don't have a hoop house or an enclosed structure. No, I don't. So okay. one of the first options would be to get a have a heart trap, you know, a, a small one designed for mice or evil squirrels or something like that. Bait that with peanut butter, and then you'll know if you do have voles um, by catching them, and they look like little uh, meadow shrews. They may even be the same kind of creature. If you have groundhogs, obviously they are big. They're dangerous. I mean, I'm glad to hear that your dogs chase them. But you know, if a groundhog gets cornered, think about those claws that dig these tunnels. They can, they can tear up a dog. So one of the, if, if, if we can't identify the creature, and we should be able to if it's voles. Voles will go into a, um, a live trap. They can also be caught with regular snap traps, mouse traps, baited with mm -hmm. peanut butter. But you got to be careful. You can't leave that out in the open, or you might catch birds. Yeah. So you got to take a shoe box, um, put a couple of baited traps inside, and then hollow out like a cartoon hole at each end for the moles to go in, uh, for the voles to go into. One thing you can try without knowing what you have is castor oil. Any decent garden center will sell what are called mole and vole repellents that are made from concentrated castor oil. Now, this is a better castor oil than you can buy in, say, a supermarket or a drugstore because the stuff that people still use is deodorized. This still has all the odor. And you pour it into the, into the holes, and it just chases them out. There is also an old technique that I really haven't been talking about a lot lately because I, I have unbalanced feelings about it. But for many years, the advice, uh, uh, if you have kitty litter, do, do you have cats? Do you have litter boxes? I don't, but I could always buy some kitty litter. Yeah, but you got to have the cat to, you know. <laughs> ah, so I need the, the feces. Yeah, you need the urine. Not the feces. Huh. The feces of cats, even indoor cats, can be dangerous to handle. But, yeah. you know, everybody who has an indoor litter box has the scoop to get the poop out. And then the advice was, especially if you had groundhogs, to let the litter box go too long, so to speak, and then dump that stinky stuff into the hole. You would move. I would move. Yeah. Um, so once we get groundhogs involved, you either need professional trappers, because they are very clever creatures, or you just keep stinking up their holes with, uh, with the castor oil products or with well-used kitty litter without the fecal matter. And what I used to say years and years ago was if you don't have your, cat, your own cat, I'm sure anybody with an indoor cat would let you borrow their stinky kitty litter, like, mm -hmm. like you're going to bring it back, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but get, right. get on top of this, because once you have these burrowing creatures entrenched, uh, you can get into a lot of trouble, especially this time of year, because in another two months, they're going to be breeding. So you want to take care of this problem um, before that happens. Um, otherwise, if you want to try to fence them out of the raised beds, 
there is a garden design for that. So you, hmm. get, you get six foot high fencing. You bury a foot and a half of it underground. You have three feet that is supported by metal stakes. Then you bend the top foot outward, unsupported. Oh. That's your baffle, because they're great climbers. So what happens is they climb up the outside, they go out on the baffle, they fall down on their furry little butts, rinse, lather, repeat. And it is, I've been told over and over again that it is a great outdoor pastime to sit out there in a lounge chair and a iced tea and have little Olympic cards holding up. That was a seven, seven, five. You know. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work, though, too. I think I might try the have a heart traps or the snap traps and just see what happens first. Yeah, see if you catch anything. And uh, feel free to call us back. All right. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You take care. Lori, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for taking me. Oh, um, thanks for being taken, Lori. Uh, how are you yeah. doing? Oh, um, I'm doing um, I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay. And where is Lori doing well? Um, let's see. I'm in Humboldt County, uh, Northern California. All right. Well, what can we do for Lori at the northern tip of California? Um, let's see. I have a uh, vigorous hydrangea. It likes where it's um, located. Um, it's vigorous. A um, couple things on it, though. Um, it's um, bottom heavy. The lowest branches, uh, you know, maybe. Um, maybe a couple inches at most, you know, from the ground. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't bother me, and it seems vigorous enough. And um, is that a problem, you know, for the bottom branches to be, you know, um, um, heavy on the bottom like that? Is it a, what we call a mop head with big round flowers? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's, exact. Yeah, it's a mop head exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's the that's the only negative about these plants is. It's really easy for the branches to get top-heavy because, especially, again, if it likes where it is, those flowers can be heavy, and they'll drag the branches down. Right. So yeah, and this has a lot of blooms, you know, a lot, yeah. Good, good. So here's what I do. I don't prune any hydrangeas until after they set their flowers. So then when I can see where all the flowers are, if there's a whole bunch of them in the back of the plant where nobody's going to see them, I'll prune some of those off and bring them inside and put them in a vase. Uh, you have two options with flowers that are too close to the ground. One of the options, of course, is to prune them off and bring them inside as well. And if the stems are really short, you'll put them in a big glass bowl that's filled with marbles to support them. It looks very nice. Something. More. Well, my concern really is my my concern really is is um, is that a problem? Is that a problem for the um, for the health of the plant? No. Um, I mean, I'm going to tell you. I I guess I answered my own question because it seems vigorous enough, you know. But yeah, that that's my only concern. If, uh, you know, was it? Um, if it were um, uh, cutting off the airflow, cutting off the air circulation, you would see. Um, black spots on the leaves. The leaves will always tell you the health of the plant. But you can also well, get... Well, actually, I, I, I do see black spots. Actually, I'm sitting out here looking at it now, mm -hmm. and I do see black spots. So, so I'm wondering, you know, is that, a pro is that just a blemish problem, not so much the health of the, pro the plant, but a blemish thing? 
well, a black spot is a, a, literally just a term for when black spots appear on plants. There's a million causes, overhead watering, lack of airflow. But what I'm going to suggest to you is double-pronged. When the plant starts to grow again and the flowers begin to appear, get a couple of garden stakes and put them on both sides of the plant and run string around the stakes so that they hold up that bottom set of branches. Then, once all the flowers have formed and you're sure there aren't any coming, get in there with pruners and cut out any branches that are not flowering. That'll let more air into the plant and it will actually make the plant appear as it even has more flowers because you've taken away the non-flowering parts. And it's also good for the plant, you know, to be relieved of um, uh, some of that extra uh, foliage that's not doing anything except blocking the air. Um, okay. Um, the only thing I'm wondering is when you said to do that after you, after you know that the um, blooms are set mm -hmm. at that point you know where they're um i'm wondering if there's a fine line you know because it seems i mean this thing you know blooms through the summer you know i mean it right. just blooms seems to bloom i um, wait i wait until that first run of flowers is almost completely open because that's also the time okay. when the plant needs the air circulation the most and Yes, maybe a couple of those branches would have bloomed later. You want to play around, you can just put the branches themselves in vases and change the water frequently. They'll still bloom if there's buds on them. Right. Okay? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks so much for that um, tip information. Really helpful. Thank oh. you very much. Oh, thank you, Laurie. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and share some important information that comes direct from the companies that supply seeds and plants to summer gardeners. There is no actual shortage of seeds or plants, but COVID restrictions and the sabotage of the postal system to try and delay presidential mail-in ballots being counted is are taking a heavy toll. So order early, be patient, and or place orders with your local independent garden center now so they know what to get for you. But don't go picking out that perfect pumpkin just yet because we'll be right back with bright ideas about seed starting and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. 
At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Hi, this is Mike McGrath, host of You Bet Your Garden, which you're listening to right now. I want to tell you, uh, it's getting down to the end of our little lucky duck promotion. If you are listening on your local radio station, I want you to support them. But if you are listening to our podcast or online or any place else, you can support the show and get your own little lucky ducky as a thank you gift when you become a member of WLVR for 60 bucks a year. You'll be supporting our station, my show, public radio in general, and all things decent and good in America. So just go to the website, youbetyourgarden.org, for all the Lucky Duck details. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the importance of light for starting good, healthy seedlings for your garden. And finally, after half a decade or so, I'm actually going to talk to you about LEDs for plant starting. It's more exciting than, uh, uh, I don't know, an old Flintstone show or something. And we'll get right to that, the thing about the LEDs, not the Flintstones, after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. Tim, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, Mike. How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking, Tim. How are you doing? I am actually doing great today because of the weather being great. Uh, We just had a thunderstorm overnight, and we were out of power. uh, And so right now, it's just just much better. So we are in Oklahoma City, oh, Oklahoma. Okay. So what can we do you for? Okay, so I uh, I have a question for you. So I, I, I have a small backyard that I've got a few fruit trees. Uh, I've got the grapevine and a couple of fruit trees, the persimmon tree and uh, pear tree. Mm-hmm. And I listen to your show. I really like it and I really thank you for all you do. Oh, thank and, you. And uh, one of the times you've mentioned that to not to prune fruit trees until they uh, go dormant. The uh, question that I have for you is, is there a, t- a certain time when the trees start to go dormant where you can start to prune a tree or a grapevine? Well, um, uh, grapevines are different. Uh, grapevines uh, can be pruned in the middle of winter or in the spring. Really, nothing should be pruned as the plants are going dormant because it can stimulate them, wake them up, and sap away a lot of their energy. Now, fruit trees are different in that uh, most of them, if not all of them, um, have already set their buds by the time winter arrives. So really, I mean, some people, especially if they have massive trees that bear too much, They will prune them in the middle of winter, which is the least damaging time. But because the blossoms are so beautiful 
in the springtime, I like to let the trees flower and then prune. Um, You're not harming the tree at all by pruning it after its flowers fade. And that's the best time to identify if there's any dead wood, any dead branches in the tree. I mean, if a branch isn't flowering, that's the first one to come off, right? What I found Uh, back when I had peach trees is if you wait till they begin to flower and then you prune them one by one, you can fill the house uh, with the flowering branches and vases in every room. I mean, it's the ultimate antidote to the month of March. Okay, so I noticed that uh, my pear tree nowadays you almost start seeing button uh, about February, mid-February to late February. It's like, is this too early? But nevertheless, I start seeing coming out. And so I kind of like start getting hesitating of uh, pruning it. And sometimes what I try to do is prune every year, prune the tree a little bit. But then every few years, I wanted to pull it back so it's not too big, too huge. Mm-hmm. So I get those big branches and cut them back. And um, like... Uh, we had over uh, October, we have a freeze storm and uh, broke a bunch of uh, large branches. And uh, so I wanted to cut some of these larger branches, but I don't, yeah, I don't want to wait till, prob- I'm not so sure if it is a good idea to wait till it's um, okay. fru- I mean, flowering you before bring you up, cut those big branches. You bring up a very interesting point, something that I should say every time. The exception to the pruning rule is when you have damaged branches. There's no advantage in leaving a cracked branch or a branch that was damaged by ice on the tree. But what I would advise in this situation is you cut the branch all the way back to the tree itself, but leave the collar on the tree. The part of the branch that connects the branch to the tree You always leave that alone. But when a branch has been heavily damaged, you want to remove the whole thing. And you can do that any time the damage occurs. I see. Okay, so I don't have to wait till a certain time when it goes dormant. Okay. Not if it's damaged, no. Okay. And uh, the reason I was asking for my uh, other two, which is the persimmons and the grapevine, which we talked about that, but they they normally come out like late, like um, beginning of March to mid-March. So... I, 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 I tried to prune all of them towards the end of uh, January here in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, then, but then I think, well, maybe I'm doing something bad for the grapevine and the persimmon tree because it's another month and a half before they come out. And I wasn't sure if I need to do it like right before two weeks or a few weeks, you know, at least three, four weeks before they start coming out. In spring. No, absolutely not. Absolutely maybe. not. What you want to avoid is pruning it as the weather is starting to warm up, but you're not out of winter for sure yet. Because if you start cutting off large sections of your grapevine or your persimmon, and then you get a hard freeze, well, the tree has already started to grow again. That's why, uh, especially for grapevines, professionals will prune them in the middle of winter, at the coldest part of the winter, during the coldest weeks in succession. So they don't wake up. They don't even know that they've been pruned. But obviously, because they are so lush, they need to be pruned all the time. I see. I see. 
And and does any all the grapevine the same, or is there certain particular ones that are different than others? Do you know? Well, I believe that pretty much in in terms of what you can grow in your locale, uh, the pruning is going to be the same. Things are different out in Northern California because they really don't have the same level of dormancy. Yeah. Uh, but if okay. uh, forgetting about the flowers or fruits, you won't harm any plant by pruning it in the dead of winter. Okay. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> I really thank you for your time. My pleasure, and you're welcome to call us back anytime. All right, as promised, it is time for the question of the week. Seed starting two. Let there be light. In our last thrilling episode, we walked you through the successful germination of seeds. We now remind you that once the first sprouts are up, you should remove any coverings to prevent mold and turn off any bottom heat. Unless you're working in an ill-advised chilly part of your home, then you can leave it on. Now it's time to supply light. And no, your so-called sunny windowsill does not count. A heated solarium or sunroom or professional greenhouse might do the trick. But you should rotate the plants daily and keep an honest eye on them. If they become tall and thin instead of short and stocky, they're not getting enough light. Don't try and rationalize this potential failure. Leggy plants go out weak to start with and don't do well once they are outdoors. A small investment in artificial light will reap endless rewards. Now, in the past, I have strongly recommended four-foot-long fluorescent tubes, and I still do. Keep the lights close to the plants, no more than an inch to an inch and a half away, as the lumens, a measure of light intensity, drop sharply after that. Letting the tops of the plants touch the bulbs is fine because the bulbs give off no heat, and then the plants are getting maximum lumens. If you have the room, a four-tube fixture is much better than a two-tube shop light. And because you've doubled the light intensity, you can even have a little more leeway with the distance between the plants and the bulbs. But closer is always better. Plan in advance to be able to raise or lower the lights as needed. Most shop light fixtures come with chains that allow you to adjust the height of the light fixture. I have found it easier to prop the ends of the fixtures up on books and shift the books around as needed. Bricks and blocks of wood also work well, but they don't allow you to replace a thick book with a thinner one for those in-between changes of height. Ah, but now my story changes. Diane and I adopted a brother and sister pair of kittens back in March, which proved to be better than Prozac at lifting the COVID blues. But they also tried to eat every single one of our house plants. So the plants went out to our insulated porch and then outside when the weather got warm enough. When it was time for them to come back inside, we arranged them and my year-old pepper plants on a big table that resides on that insulated and heated porch, which is the one room in the house where Monkey Boy and PC are denied access. 
I hung a four-tube fixture over them, and all was well until we got to January, when I had promised myself I would start my new pepper plants super early because they grow so much slower than tomatoes. But the giant island in the kitchen where seed starting had previously been accomplished was now patrolled by the terrible twosome, and I frantically searched for another surface that could accommodate four-foot-long lights. Then I saw a TV ad for a super-bright LED garage light that looked like the kind of solar panel arrays we use in outer space, the panels unfolding to bathe a large area in lots of lumens. So I went online, searched super-bright garage lights, and was deluged with choices. Properly called a deformable lamp, I eventually settled on a set of two, each with four wings of LED panels that promised over 12,000 lumens per fixture for a total of around 40 bucks for both. That's a lot of light for not much money. And the fixtures screw into normal Edison-type light sockets. To hang them, I bought two trouble lights, also known as work lights. These are essentially extension cords that have a light bulb holder at the business end. I removed the cages that would have otherwise protected a regular bulb from being smashed, screwed in my deformables, and hung them about a foot and a half above my baby starts, supported by the longest wall hooks I could find. Now that distance is just a best guess starting point. I will adjust it based on the legginess or compactness of the starts below. And so, I finally have a half answer for all of you who have been asking, what about LEDs for seed starting? This style of lamp may be an ideal starting point. Super bright with an excellent color temperature range, compact, affordable, and easily adjustable. And they're not your only LED option. Our own man with a plan, Fred MacGyver Matlack, recently replaced an odd-sized, three-foot-long, fluorescent, over-the-counter bathroom light with an LED version that included a complete new fixture, all for a surprisingly reasonable price. Fred reports that it throws much more light than the old fluorescent. Someone who only wants to grow a few six-packs of starts could do worse than try one of these. But, 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 the key word here is try. I have no idea how my little experiment is going to work out, but it is allowing me to use a three-foot-long table and two-foot-long chest of drawers out on my insulated porch to start my seeds this year, kitty cat free. Next week, we wind up the trilogy of all time with when to start your seeds. Hint, it's generally two months before you intend to plant them outdoors. Feeding your baby starts, watering them, and other important stuff. Well, that sure was some interesting information about lighting up your baby plants. Now, what? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. 
yikes, my producer is threatening to shut my light if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. You'll find all of this contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find archived answers to your garden questions. Audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows. Aye. Details on how to get your very own little ducky by becoming a member of Lehigh Valley Public Media and our internationally renowned podcast. By the way, Here's a special note to our radio and podcast listeners. To help you understand what these deformable lights we just spoke about look like, we did a short video showcasing these interesting LEDs. That video will appear on the television version of this week's show. Watch it at YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio and Television in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, a public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a comet crossed low over the Earth's atmosphere and he was swept away to a land of confused Confederate soldiers and dinosaurs. There's always dinosaurs. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer is the always cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick is our profound producer of Peerless Production. The lovely and talented Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Judicious Jake Boyer handles our video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Andy Cummins takes our temperature at the door. The original star of I Was a Teenage Werewolf, Zach the Takwasneski, is in the house. Somewhat ably assisted by Bethlehem's answer to the Bowery Boys, Eric Werner, Jacob Morris, Jeff Frederick, and many more. Too expensive to mention. Our CEO and Grand Poobah, Tim Fallon, was not late for our most recent Zoom meeting. But we can't be sure it was really him, because all we ever saw was the top of his head. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. And speaking of high-powered lights, I'm so bright they used to call me Sonny. And I'll see you again next week. Come on, how hard can it be to keep baby plants alive after their seeds sprout? I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next You Bet Your Garden, we'll discuss how to prevent seeds starting from becoming plant killing as the final entry in a trilogy to rival the Lord of the Rings. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden. Uh-huh.